the Panhandle News Network. The views and opinions on this station do not necessarily represent the Panhandle News Network, WEPM and WCST, or West Virginia Radio Corporation. Here we go! Welcome to Panhandle Live on WEPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Panhandle Live is brought to you by Sutton and Janelle Attorneys at Law. Visit their new location at 224 West King Street, Martinsburg, and online at suttonandjanelle.com. Here are your hosts of the 2022 WVBA Talk Show of the Year, Jordan Warner and Marcia Kavalik. It is Wednesday the 22nd. You're tuned in to Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton & Janelle, full-service law firm serving West Virginia and Maryland. You can visit their historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street. You can always find them online at suttonandjanelle.com. I'm Jordan Icewarner. Alongside me is Marsha Kavalik. Good morning, Marsha. Good morning. We're going old school. I gave you the printout. I know, um, man. Much like Berkeley County school students, and there, well, I'll have more updates about that. Um, well, there's a story. Again. Story at PanhandleNewsNetwork.com. I reached out to them for clarification, and it's just kind of an update. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll so be looking forward to it. <laughs> pen, I hope they're not mad. Pen and pencil. Pen and pencil. They, do kids even know how to write on paper anymore? I, I think it must be exhausting. <laughs> must, must be, be. exhausting. Well, uh, we do have our first guest joining us. We sure do. Uh, in studio with us from uh, Shepherd University, she's bragging a little bit, low-key, high-key, that she's retired. Oh, must be nice. <laughs> the retired chair of the Contemporary Art and Theater Department. Uh, let's see, that would be Rhonda, Rhonda mm-hmm. Smith, right? Yep. And then Professor of Education and Human Development, Don Burke. Did I get everything right? Yes, you did. Okay, Absolutely. especially the retired, retired, retired. Yeah, yeah, retired. Okay, so they're, they're here to talk to us about Stories of Store College, um, Portraits of Persistence. Who wants to kind of, uh, you know, umbrella why this is uh, coming to Shepherd and why you guys thought it was important? Okay, I think I'll start. So that would be Rhonda, yep. the retiree. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to let this go now. Um, I had created uh, 12 portraits of uh, former students of Storr College. And um, I did this, I started this project uh, during the pandemic when I was watching all over the news about Black Lives Matter. And I was wondering, what is it that I can do to contribute or help this cause? As a white person, what can I do? And I began thinking about it, and, you know, there's nothing in my background, nothing in my history that allows me to talk about the black experience. I don't have that. It's not there. But I am a teacher, and I am an educator. And I worked for the National Park Service in Harpers Ferry for, I don't know, seven or eight years before I went to Shepherd. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I thought, you know what? Store College. I walked all over Store College. I walked in and out of all those buildings. I know that place. So I went back over and visited it again and read the, you know, the um, outdoor exhibits that are there, the wayside exhibits. That's what I worked for, the wayside exhibits. And I read all those and I thought, there's not enough here. I need more information. If I want to pursue this, I need more information. And that's when I stumbled on this book by Don Burke, An American Phoenix, a history of Store College from slavery to um, desegregation. Wow. Wow. How about well, that? Well, yeah. Don, I guess I should ask you this question, or I'm asking both of you this question. Uh, for a lot of people, I'm sure it's probably the first time they've ever heard the words Store College together. So explain to people what Store College was. Oh, yes. I, I, I would uh, argue that um, our unawareness 
of that uh, educational facility goes uh, much farther beyond Harper's Ferry. But um, the, the history of that institution began um, actually just prior to the end of the American Civil War. And it was a first a series of mission schools. You know, at the end of the Civil War, these free will Baptists from New England felt that assuredly one of the outcomes of this great national um, uh, uh, travesty would be that the slaves would be freed and that this enslaved vagabond population would then uh, have to be taught uh, literacy skills. So they wanted to uh, come to the South. Uh, they incorporated as the uh, Corporation for the Promotion of Education in the South, which was, I, I felt, very shrewd on their part because they didn't identify what they were really going to do, mm -hmm. and that would be to educate the slaves and teach them literacy. And so the institution then um, really begins with the series of mission schools all around this region, including Maryland and neighboring states of Virginia. And as this uh, network, I refer to them in my book, a network of mission schools, they knew that after these uh, primary schools that they would have to do something else with this student population. So then the federal government in Washington, with, combined with uh, the Freedmen's Bureau, which um, General Howard was uh, the head of the Bureau at the time, gave these um, bombed-out buildings in Harper's Ferry to the Free Will Baptists who were from New England and uh, asked them to, uh, if, if they could uh, institute a school to promote education and literacy oh, among just, slave just populations. Just fix it up, right? Just fix yeah, up these bombed-out buildings. Yes, I mean, the, the mission teachers that were here were these young women from the, from the New England states, and uh, in their diaries, they go on and on and on about the dilapidated state in which they had to live in Harper's Ferry. I mean, um, yeah. one of one of them even says, you know, I, I look up through the roof and, and, and pray to God. Wow. 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 So it then becomes a four-year institution. Yeah. Mm -hmm. huh. And so how long was Store College from its mission roots to, a, you know, a, a structure, a building in existence? Um because it's it's not currently operating as a as a college in that way. No, it's 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 quite a uh, strange twist of fate here. Because it is interesting that you know it actually starts in 1865 as a mission school, doesn't get a West Virginia uh, state charter until 67, and it lasted for nine decades. But the the issue was that um, the 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 institution of Store College began over the issue of slavery, but then in 1955, after the May 54 Brown v. Board decision, it meets its end over uh, segregation. Or because the state of West Virginia could no longer justify, you see, using a system of taxation for what was viewed as a private school, although in all of their uh, catalogs for the institution, and I looked at the chronology uh, they all say without regard to uh, color, race, and, hmm. and gender. So just to clarify, Store started pr as a primary mission, and then it became kind of a, a, a college level, right? Weren't they training students to be oh, educators? Oh, yes. They had, uh, <laughs> they had several programs there. They were uh, training, uh, of course, um, 
in, in all of the HBCs, the first programs of study would have been preachers and teachers hmm. because that's, that's what the black community and uh, the black community would have wanted. However, I would also say that uh, you would not have found white teachers teaching in um, the, the, the black schools you see. Wow. So um, this, is, this is how this, this actually started, preaching and teaching, but then they had industrial arts like um, uh, cosmetology. Of course, it wasn't called that then, but it was cosmetology and um, uh, carpentry and barbers, training barbers. So, so mainly the, um, all of the positions in a community, such as uh, we would just uh, say a, a community of color, mm-hmm. but training all of those special art forms and skills that would have been necessitated mm-hmm. to uh, incorporate a specific community of color and uh, also educate and teach. And, of course, uh, you know, the Bible was used uh, by the mission teachers right. for uh, literacy. That's on yeah. brand. Yes. I mean, if they're from yes. the Baptist yeah. mission, right? Absolutely. And, and I'd like to insert here mm-hmm. that that when um, Storer College um, was forced to close because of um, desegregation, it was forced to close because it couldn't raise the financial funds. The state of West Virginia then quit uh, providing any kind of funding to the college, which meant that they had to go out and, and solicit pro- all private funding <laughs> for the school. And they were just unsuccessful in being able to raise enough money to keep the school going. So one of the stories that really prompted me to focus on students rather than maybe the teachers or the faculty at Stewart, but to really focus on the students, one of the stories that literally made me cry, I mean, it just touched my heart, was a student who, once it was desegregated and, and she was in school at store, but she had not finished her degree program. So she was told that as a black student, she could now transfer to Shepherd University, or Shepherd College, it was at the time, to Shepherd College, and this would have been 1955 or so, and she could then complete her education. So she did that. She registered for her classes, and she first day of class, she goes to her class, not a problem. She goes into the cafeteria to get something to eat. She's denied service. And when was this? Around 1955. Hmm. Denied service. She goes to the library. She kind of feels the same exact treatment. So what does this woman do? She goes back to her car. And she stayed in her car until her next class. This broke my heart because this is what she did every day because she said, I'm going to get my degree. I'm Hmm. going to finish, even though this campus... The campus I taught at for over 30 years was not welcoming, did not want her there. Faculty taught, they're going to teach, but she was not welcome on that campus. She, she felt like, she, and she had been, when she was at store, that wasn't her experience, of right. course. She'd walked around freely. She'd gone to the cafeteria. Now, Harper's Ferry wasn't a welcoming place, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But, but she had that safe space. But the campus was safe. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly she was denied that. And that's really what prompted me to do these images of the students. So we're talking about portraits of persistence. Uh, Shepherd University retiree 
uh, <laughs> Rhonda Smith, and uh, uh, and also uh, author uh, Don Burke, who wrote an American Phoenix: um, A History of Store College from Slavery to Desegregation. This is, I mean, we could probably do a whole show oh, on absolutely. this, but there's plenty of information that folks can get when they go to the exhibit. Can you talk about when, where, and who can, who can go? Sure thing. So uh, Portraits of Persistence is going to be at the Scarborough Library in um, Shepherd, at Shepherd University in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. The exhibit is open uh, February 28th through April the 1st. So that's February 28th through April the 1st, Scarborough Library, Shepherd University. Um, Dawn and I are doing a lecture on March 7 at 7 p.m. in the Scarborough Library. We're going to be standing amongst the portraits and um, other artifacts that will be there about store um, because Dawn has a whole uh, collection of items that give you a little history of store and um, the Scarborough Library also has a collection of items related to Store mm. College. So they're going to bring all those out for our lecture specifically. And it is open to the public? And it public? is free and completely open to the public. Um, parking is also free. Sometimes people Ooh. on campus, if you arrive after 4.30, you can park anywhere on campus oh, for we're free. Yep. Okay. And so yep. our lecture is at 7, so you have plenty of time. <laughs> Someone in the parking <laughs> Uh, patrol is like, why did she say that? <laughs> After 4.30, it's free. Don't worry about it. And I would like to say also that a lot of times campuses can be a little intimidating for those who aren't familiar with campus or not familiar, and they can feel a little off-put by the whole experience. Listen, don't be. It's a small campus. Park. Get out of your car. Wander around. It's really open and welcoming. And when you walk in the library, don't be weirded out. Just walk in the library. There's an information desk right there, and there will be somebody sitting there that will point the way to anything you want to know. So it's it's a really good place. Well, Rhonda, Dawn, I appreciate you all coming in and chatting about this. And uh, Dawn, I want to ask you one last question uh, before we let you go. And again, we have about uh, two minutes, so apologize for giving me such, such a short time frame. But what uh, brought you to, you know, writing this book about Store College? Uh, where, where did the interest come from? Well, when I started teaching in uh, the Publix, um, this is this is actually my home county, so I'm thrilled to be back in my home county Welcome this back. morning. Uh, but when I started teaching in the public schools, I became very disillusioned by the fact that the children of color that I was teaching had no knowledge of the history and the contributions that their history had made. I'd like to close with just this, uh, a brief statement. The role of Store College should be no less important than any who contributed to the diverse fabric we commonly refer to as the American educational system. The school, after all, had been established by men and women imbued by the intellectual progenitors of the Age of Enlightenment. This had really been a Jeffersonian ideal and one that evolved out of the Declaration's Enlightened by Design framework, since it was the Founding Fathers' notions, just as the Founding Fathers of Storer College believed, that we should be an educated citizenry for participatory citizenship. Well, Dawn, Rhonda, thank you all for coming in thank and talking you. about sharing the story of Storer College and, of course, talking about Portraits of Persistence, which will be uh, on display on exhibit at Shepherd University as well. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And stick around for more after the break on WPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. 
from Pawpaw to Harper's Ferry, from Martinsburg to Winchester, it's Panhandle Live with hosts Jordan Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back to Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton and Janelle, full-service law firms for West Virginia and Maryland. You can visit their historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street. You can always find them online at suttonandjanelle.com. I'm Jordan Icewinner. Alongside me is Marsh Kavalik. And goodness, what an interesting conversation we just had with Rhonda Smith and Don Burke talking about Portraits of Persistence, a store or college exhibit going on uh, over at Shepherd University and Man, Marsha, we were talking about during the break. I think we could have talked to them for two hours. We sure could have. Um, but, you know, the news cycle goes on. And to that end, happy to be joined. Thank you for uh, answering the text this morning by Metro News statewide correspondent Brad McElhaney. Welcome in. Hey, hi, guys. Anytime. Hey, so what do you have on your radar today? Oh, man. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> dysfunction. <laughs> <laughs> We got that up uh, here. <laughs> I, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, well, so, here, I, mean, I can I can interrupt you here, and I'll ask you a more direct question while you think about that. Now, I'm looking here at uh, some of the headlines, and they're talking about the uh, Alabama basketball star that you know was uh, in that fatal shooting of uh, a person on campus, and it came out that he bought a gun from a teammate, this, that, and the third. And that uh, brings to my mind the campus carry bill. Now, of course, at uh, WVU over in Morgantown, this was a hot topic that was brought up by, I believe, the student government and then taken to higher administration. But I see uh, that that bill is starting to get a little bit of momentum. Yeah, the well, it's it's got yeah, all the momentum. It, it passed the House of Delegates this week had already passed the Senate. Frankly, I don't remember if – I think it now goes to the governor. I, I don't think there were any changes between the House and the Senate. So it's it's largely through the legislative process. And the universities and most of West Virginia's major colleges were against it, although they didn't exactly go to the mat over it. But essentially it would allow concealed carry on college campuses with, with some exceptions, and I also think – the colleges have to need to need to provide for uh, lockers for if you're you know if you're storing mm-hmm. your, your gun in some buildings. Um, so you'd ha- you'd have to abide by the rules surrounding concealed carry, and the, the arguments you know were clearly passionate on both sides. Um, you know, just a, a general concern about firearms on campus with this generation of college students that have just lived through one school shooting after another, the, the most recent at Michigan State University last week. Um, the the pressures of college campus, uh, the, the mental health issues, the alcohol, the, uh, the, the, the romantic relationships that can go south, um, you know, the, the inclusion of weapons in that sort of cocktail of, of of stress and other factors uh, was was a reason people cited in opposing this bill. But you know, on the on the other side were people who cited things like what happened at Michigan State. Uh, one of the delegates, Mike Honaker from Greenbrier County, a Republican, had been a responding officer at Virginia Tech years ago, and he one of his conclusions was he strongly believed that that. Students should have the ability to, to be armed to potentially have concealed carry permits so that they could fight back against an intruder like that. Um, you know, I, 
I probably lack the knowledge to know whether that would be a good idea, but <laughs> um, you know, the, the 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 Michigan State students got texts saying, uh, "Run, hide, fight," and fight is typically the last option, mm. and it's meant to be sort of in close quarters. But the, the argument in favor of of allowing students to be armed in some way is if some intruder did come on campus, you'd have half a chance to fight back with your own weapon. It is crazy to think, it is crazy to think that these students nowadays, I mean, this is just as crazy as this to say a a normal thing to think about, you know, it's just a normal kind of occupational hazard almost. But, and that's what makes it kind of crazy to think about, at least in my mind, because you, you think, of course, keep guns away from school, right? But then this one is kind of giving people the opportunity to have them. This is not elementary school, though. That's this, true. These are adults, See, some true. of whom have been deployed, right. some of whom right. are in active military right. or veterans, um, and it's not the Wild West. Right. And I, I'm not saying for or against it, but, um, you know, how do you how do you convey the nuances of it, though? It's not everyone can have a gun mm-hmm. who wants to have one on a, on a campus. The folks who get a concealed carry license go through specific right. training and licensing, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a, there's a burden of responsibility to, to apply and go through uh, that process and, and be approved. So, I mean, that, that does assume some responsibility. And in the Michigan State case, it was, it was a guy from off campus who should not have had those weapons, who had been in trouble with his, uh, with, with firearms previously and, you know, he was he was not someone who was going through the process of seeking approval for a concealed carry permit. Uh, so that's an issue. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing that I kind of wondered about that I, I didn't hear come up much was r- romantic relationships gone sour. Where and, and I think of, although I suppose it could go the other way, I think of a female student who maybe has parted ways in a rocky manner with Maybe a young man who, you know, she's got to, to potentially defend herself, um, mm-hmm. you know, a, a potentially a domestic violence or, or, or stalking situation. These things happen, too. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately, you know, there, there, there are awful cases on either side that you can bring up for the argument here. And uh, so that's one that comes up in my mind is, is, you know, what if what if my daughter were on a college campus and had a former toxic relationship and she felt like she had to protect herself. Right. Um, that's, that's, that's one that comes to mind to me as an example of how this might apply. So uh, another uh, article at metronews.com, this one's from Jeff Jenkins. Uh, the Senate committee changes pay raise bill from 5% to just an across the board $2,300 uh, pay increase. That's still moving, right? That nothing, nothing's firmed into law, right? Yeah, that's right. And so the governor proposed pay raises for all state employees. But the, the reason this has to be a separate specific bill is the state police and educators have specific pay scales in state law. So there has to be a bill reflecting those changes on the scales in code. And I, I will say I, I lack the expertise to know what the difference is between that flat sum uh, whatever it was, the $2,300 versus the average 5%. But Jeff got Dale Lee of the West Virginia Education Association on the line. And and Mr. Lee's suggestion is that would work out probably somewhat better, particularly for teachers who've been in the system for a while. 
And his point is, of course, that the state needs to recruit new young teachers, get get people into classrooms for the first time, but it's also got to work to retain the ones who are already in the classroom and, and make them feel like they're receiving some financial rewards. So uh, that's that's part of the thinking there. Again, we're speaking with Metro News statewide correspondent Brad McElhenney. Before we let you go, uh, what do you got going on today? Are we going to hear you on Hoppy or anything later on? I am coming up with Hoppy, and we're going to talk about this PEIA bill that is a little bit complicated. But anytime, I mean, it's, it's taxpayer dollars at play with PEIA. Um, millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars have been supporting that insurance, but also that has helped keep out-of-pocket rates flat for those who receive PEIA. And, and to some degree, that may be coming to an end. Uh, and this bill would, in a variety of ways, affect that. So it's the bill is, is potentially raising some alarms, and, and Hoppy and I are going to explore that just a little bit further today. Um, the bill to split DHHR into three different agencies is up for passage today in the state Senate. I, I, the House has already passed it, and it made some changes from what the Senate had done, but so far no other changes. So that could be through the legislative process today. And finally, there's a bill moving through committee that would open up HOPE scholarship recipients if they are in private schools or things that they call micro schools um, or, oh, there's one other sort of new-to-me school set up. But anyway, those HOPE scholarship students, if their private schools don't offer sports team, they could play on the local public school on the on the team that is not not offered by their private school. And, I, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. that's interesting both politically and athletically. And so probably is of interest to our readers and listeners. So many moving parts. Listen in uh, to Talk Line with Hoppy Kirchival uh, beginning at 10.06. And uh, as promised, there will be a Brad uh, segment. It's always and a good Brad segment. And, of course, you can always follow along at WVMetroNews.com. And, Brad, thank you for joining us on Panhandle Live today. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks. That's Brad McElhenney, uh, Metro News statewide correspondent. Like uh, Marcia said, you can listen to him uh, on Talk Line with Hoppy Kerchival starting at 10.06 and goes up until noon, uh, which is always uh, a lot of great information, especially when Brad's on the line. But we'll step aside. We'll come back. Keep things going here on Panhandle Live on WPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Live and local, it's Panhandle Live. With hosts Jordan Nice Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back to Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton and Janelle, full service law firms from West Virginia and Maryland. You can visit their historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street. You can always find them online at suttonandjanelle.com. I'm Jordan Nice Warner. Alongside me is Marsha Kavalik. Marsha, are you a reader? Do you I like am. to read? Yes. How many books do you think you take down in a year? So books, probably three. So what kind of? So when make, you say you're a reader, it's what, nonfic. You know okay. that. But are you more of like a? You'll read the paper, or magazine. Well, sure. Yeah, I read those too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm mostly not. I, it's very rare that I read something that's fiction now, unless I'm on vacation. Now I come from a family of readers. My mom and dad. I feel like, especially my mom, have always just had books in their hands forever, forever. They've always, you know, tried to instill that in me to read which i do from time to time but as i think the times have uh, moved along younger and younger kids they don't necessarily want to read books as much but 
our uh, next guest joining us in studio, Marsha, are looking to change that. <laughs> and and they they know the value of putting books in uh, kids' hands and showing by example how much fun it is to read. Joining us uh, from Read Aloud Berkeley is uh, Casey Wilson and Bob Fleener. Welcome in. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having us. Good morning. It's a joy to be here. Thank it you. It really is. And Jordan, I read probably four or five books a week. Whoa. But, like, okay. Wow. So how? But, how do you do that? How do you have the time? Where because, do you make the time to read that much? That's a great question. I go into the classrooms and I read picture books to uh. pre-K <laughs> through second grade. You see what he did there? I see. You see Not what he bad. did there? Hey, you got to pump the numbers sometimes. Man, I was know? feeling so bad about myself because I'm like, well, three a year, you know, every, to be honest. Yeah, I read like, one oh. or two books every two years. Casey's um, taking down four a week. I know. Uh, piece well, of cake. Piece of cake. Well, tell us about Read Across America. So what's that? Whoever wants to take it. Well, we're really to discuss Read Aloud West or, Virginia. That's what I mean. That's course. what I mean. Read Aloud. Yeah. Yes, and, that's what of I course, mean. we focus on the Mountain State. We're an organization that's been around since about 1987, started with a bunch of soccer moms in Kanawha <laughs> County, and it gradually it gradually spread through the state of West Virginia, and at the turn of the millennium, we were in 53 out of 55 counties. Wow. Our sponsorship source sort of dried up at that point, and we went from 53 chapters to four. Fortunately, one of the four was Berkeley County. We've had a, a strong program here since about 1989 or 1990. And gradually, the program is rebuilt. We found new, we found new sponsorships. We have a very active uh, state organization in Charleston. We're in probably back to around three dozen counties or so, and we have a footprint and maybe a few more around West Virginia. But uh, we're in bit rebuild mode right now, frankly. Um, on March 12, 2020, the day before the world shut down, we were in. T- we had volunteer readers in 231 classrooms, wow. about 165 readers on our active rolls at that in the, point in the county in berkeley the, county alone we were oof. we were we were in uh, we were in 20 22 schools covering grades pre-k through five hmm. the next day we were at zero <laughs> so we've uh, so we've been digging out from that now in the meantime uh as the, as the school as of course it's only in the last year that the classrooms have reopened to live volunteers again but in the meantime we were uh Still reaching out, we had a group of about three dozen readers who were still communicating with children online via Microsoft Teams or Zoom or whatever. So we were still reaching the classrooms. It wasn't as effective, but we were still a presence. We had a number of volunteers in Casey, almost foremost among them, who were recording themselves. So we have wow. we have these videos of Casey <laughs> and others reading books that wow. could be shared among classroom so we were still having an effect and in the meantime we were still fulfilling our mission of um, improving the literacy culture in West Virginia by getting reading material in the hands and on the minds of our students we were still doing book distributions we were getting hundreds of books to schools around Berkeley County and statewide that's amazing that's impressive it was it was very uh important to keep a presence with the kids as you know Jordan you mentioned with your mom uh, teachers teach the kids to read. We motivate the kids to read, which is the best part of our job. We go in, it's a non-test environment, and we just say, here's a book that's super, you guys are going to love this. And we motivate them are to read. Are you not making them write any the paper about it or no. anything like that? Uh, and that's a good question. We're in totally non-test environment. Even the questions we ask are more leading questions, not like who remembers what. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but what your mother did is most important because readers, um, families raise readers. Right. And that's where the kids really learn to read. We can motivate them to go home and want to pick up a book, a magazine, a comic book, a newspaper, anything to look at because it has a, an impact mm-hmm. on how they turn out as adults. It's the most important tool in their toolkit to be successful in today's society is literacy. Well, is- she just texted me and said she read 51 books last year. Her goal oh was 50. Wow. That's your mom? Yeah. Congratulations. 51 books. I bet books. they were more than like 20 pages, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were pages. And, and she's got one of those Kindles, the like e-readers, too, and just knocks them out. Which brings out an, an important point, because um, Berkeley County Schools, as we know, suffered a cybersecurity incident hmm. um, earlier in the month, and a lot of a lot of their instruction has gone old school really quickly. When students are so used to seeing family members on their phones or their Kindle even consuming books... Um, how important is it for them to see those physical books, to crack open that book, to smell it? Oh, absolutely. That's <laughs> that a great point, Marsha. Uh, and one of the fundamental points there is that reading the printed page has a significant impact actually on how your brain works. The digital environment is intentionally disruptive. So when you're on, even on a Kindle, Jordan, when you're on a, a screen that's connected to other things, it tends to be uh, intentionally disruptive. When you focus on a printed brain, uh, page, your brain works differently. Comprehension, what you remember, and how you synthesize the information. So reading the printed page has a great impact. That's why we want to get back to that, oh, given what we're up against, as right. you both have mentioned. Right. Uh, it's getting the kids interested in picking up a book and spending some time with it. And we're still digging out of a bit of a hole. Now, if, if you're a, a second or third grader in Berkeley County, you haven't had a normal school year. Yeah, ever. Ever. Yeah, ex- exactly. So, And uh, the, the test scores, the, uh, the achievement levels around the, uh, around the county and around the state have suffered as a result. So our work is cut out for us. It sure is. In fact, it's, it's had an impact on the entire nation. Mm-hmm. 30 states had decreases. Uh in reading scores, uh, and 20 held about even. But uh, to your point, Jordan, again, and and Marsha, what's interesting about this old-school instruction is that they teach you to read up until about fourth grade. When you enter fourth grade, then they say, now you read to learn. Here's your social studies book. Mm. And if you're not reading at grade level by grade four, you're behind the eight ball the rest of your career. Yeah, it's not interesting reading that anyways. Who wants to read the, who wants to read the textbooks, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. but, you, but you, it's reading across the <laughs> curriculum. You have to read to I learn. Know, but I, I think it's a, it's a valid point because if students don't see the value in reading, um, mm-hmm. by the time they're in fourth grade, then it's a struggle for them. It's a struggle for the teachers because, you know, they've constantly got these students who are trying to catch up. Correct. And that's, that's really where we're coming from. We're trying to motivate the written page because of those skills and the actual physical enhancement of what it does to your comprehension. And here's an interesting statistic. Uh, let's take three kids uh, from kindergarten to sixth grade. If they read 20 minutes a day after school or read with their parents or their family, uh, they will hear 1,800,000 more words than a kid who reads five minutes a day Wow! and a kid that reads one minute a day. Now, let's just drop to the bottom line. If you read 20 minutes a day, you will score in the top 10% of standardized mm-hmm. scoring. If you read just five minutes a day, 
if you parents listening out there can sit down for five minutes with your kids or give them a book, they'll score in the top 50%. Hmm. That child that comes from out from a home without books and without reading, without newspapers, will be in the bottom 10% for sure. So other than Read Aloud Berkeley, what are some other, you know, strategies, I guess you can say, for those parents out there listening that have been trying to get their kids to read a book, but all they want to do is, you know, play video games or, you know, look on the phone all day and do whatever. What are some strategies you think, uh, you know, that would help? Bob, you want to, I, I was going to tell the Mary Kay story, and I had an experience yesterday real quick mm-hmm. where she said she would sit in a room and just start reading a book. And her three or four or five-year-old or somebody distracted by a digital device would eventually circle back to her. Yesterday, I sat in a school uh, at an activities table about two feet off the ground. I need help help getting up. He's the tallest (laughs) kid in the room. But they were involved in activity coloring and whatnot. And the teacher said, well, here's some books. And I, I colored with the kids, and we were punching holes. Then I just picked up a book and started reading it called... Will you love me even if I'm a stinky face? And, uh, <laughs> you had to be there. You would have liked it, Jordan, I guarantee. Uh, Were you reading it out loud? Yes. Okay. Uh, reading out loud. Yeah. And pretty soon I had seven or eight kids literally this tall, some who could oh. not articulate yet. Some, hmm. of the, some of the special needs kids couldn't, couldn't really speak. Gather around. They'd look up. They'd come over. They'd look at the picture. So one strategy is just to... to to read, to let them see you reading, to start reading something aloud, just be with them. And, and let them read whatever they want to read. Mm-hmm. If they want to pick up a comic book, that's cool. Don't be upset by that. Let them read that. Because it has book. words, too. That's right. Manga has words. You have to read it backwards, but it's got words. <laughs> yeah, it might trip you out when you pick it up and you're like, what is happening? And then you realize what's going on. I'm at the on. end of the story. So talk about um, volunteer recruitment. Absolutely. Um when we, when we came back from COVID, we lost a lot of volunteers. A lot of people were wary about going back into the classroom, still are, because of the, uh, because of the threat of maybe picking up a virus. Uh, we have a lot of our readers might follow a child or a grandchild through the school system. So as their children age out, uh, they fall by the wayside. So we still have uh, quite, a, uh, quite a need. Uh, we have right now 49 teachers in Berkeley County who have said, hey, I would like a read-aloud volunteer, and we don't have one for them yet. So we're still we're still recruiting. We have a, a couple of online events statewide that are coming up, so you may want to take some notes here. They'll be coming up on uh, Tuesday. That's March the 7th at 5.30 p.m. And then the following lunch hour, Casey and I will be facilitating a uh, – a new reader orientation that'll be March eighth at uh, twelve thirty p.m. So, what does the schedule look like for a reader? Is it an everyday thing, once a week? Uh, typically, typically it's a once a week commitment. Now that can vary. Sometimes it might be once every other week. There have been occasions where a teacher might have two or three readers assigned to the classroom that will come in on a rotating basis. But generally, you it's a contract with the teacher. You're coming in typically once a week on a designated day at a designated time. You're there for 20 minutes to a half hour, depending on the attention span and the ages of the, mm-hmm. ch- of the children involved. <laughs> and then you work with the teacher. I mean, there's some, you know, there's, you have to work around snow days sometimes or assemblies or last week uh, we caught a fire drill oh, over, nice. at, uh, over at Orchard View Intermediate. <laughs> so I had, to, I had to wait that out. <laughs> 
Well, it's it's certainly, uh, I think, a very important and impactful uh, program, Read Aloud Berkeley, and, of course, Read Across America as a whole. So uh, let people know, and uh, if you have anything else, too, feel free to share it before we get to our last break, how people can get involved. If they'd Wonderful. Like. Yeah. But uh, the easiest thing to do, we, uh, the state organization has a marvelous website. It's readaloudwv.org. And you can go there to their uh, t- and uh, do a backslash calendar, and that will give you links to these two upcoming new reader orientation sessions. These will last uh, an hour to uh, maybe 75 minutes or so in length. Uh, we cover the, the history of the program, why we do what we do, uh, protocols, best practices, tips about book selection, which is a whole can of worms these days. Would you love me if I was a stinky face? I think that's a pretty <laughs> what a cool title. selection. What a title for a book. <laughs> And then people, of course, you could then you could click click on a link on the calendar, and then you would be registered for that session. You will get the uh, Zoom login credentials for that day, and uh, then you can uh, you can register online. We will talk to them about specific vacancies within our, within our counties, uh, and then you will have an opportunity to try to get paired up with a with a teacher. And there's still we still have three months left in the school year, so there's time. I started the program around the first of April. Oh gosh, nine years ago now, hmm. and was able to uh, read in two classrooms for about eight weeks, which gave me time to finish a chapter book. So, well, there you go. Well, uh, Bob Fleener, Casey Wilson, thank you all for coming in and chatting with us this morning. What a great, uh, you know, program. And like you said, it's important. It's a big deal to uh, you know be able to read a and then enjoy reading too uh, for the rest of your life. It's something you never give up. So, thank you all for coming in and chatting with us this morning. No problem. We really appreciate it. Yes, Absolutely. thank you very much. Thank you. And stick around for more. We'll be back in just about a minute and a half to wrap things up here on Panhandle Live on WPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Welcome back to Panhandle Live. Here are your hosts, Jordan Nice Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back to Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton and Janelle, full-service law firm, from West Virginia and Maryland. You can visit their historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street. You can always find them online at suttonandjanelle.com. I'm Jordan Nice Warner. Alongside me is March Kapalik. If you missed any of the show so far, you can listen back to it a little bit later on on our Panhandle News Network and Spotify page. Uh, just before the break, we had Bob Fleener and Casey Wilson in to talk about Read Aloud Berkeley, which is a part uh, of Read Across America. And wow, what an interesting and very important program I think that is. So, I, yeah, I brought them in because we're thinking about reading with Read Across America, which is kind of like that Dr. Seuss's birthday thing. Mm-hmm. But they work all year round uh, in Read Aloud, so, and you can become a part of it. I had a few little news items that I wanted to direct folks' attention to. You go to panhandlenewsnetwork.com. You can see some of these stories. Uh, Berkeley County Schools continues to work through their cybersecurity incident. I reached back out to them and basically got the answer that, you know, they don't want to um, compromise the investigation. They, they they will share information when they can, but they're not really saying anything. But it's it's pretty old school in Berkeley County Schools right now. Um, as a matter of fact, they're a little concerned about how grades will get tabulated mm-hmm. and, and presented, you know, because the marking period marches on. Um, also, Logan's Log- Lego Fair, which we told you about, <clears throat> excuse me, on our newscasts, raised $1,500 for the American Heart Association yesterday. Wow. Yeah. In honor of a young man uh, from C.W. Shipley who um, who died last fall, he um, had some issues with his heart. And his mother is quoted um, 
uh, in the press release from um, Jefferson County Schools is saying he just would do these Lego sets over and over while he was in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And it was a great passion of his. Well, how cool is that? Yeah. Very neat. Yeah. So um, also, uh, Race Charlestown is congratulating what they're saying is the winningest Charlestown trainer, Steve Asmussen, on his 10,000th win yesterday. Uh, One of his first stakes winners, Rock House, won on the very first West Virginia Breeders Classic. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. 10,000 wins. There you go. Well, if you missed any of the show today, listen back to it a little bit later on on our Panhandle News Network Facebook and Spotify page. Why uh, off? Because I can't hear it because I didn't have my headphones on. I can there we hear go. It. Well, uh, you can listen back to it a little bit later on. Talk line with Hoppy Kirchival is next. Uh, for Marsha, I'm Jordan. Uh, well, I'm glad it's not snowing, but stay safe out there. It looks like it is it getting into earlier. a nasty one. Yeah. yeah. So stay safe out on the roads. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Martinsburg and WCST Berkeley Springs, a WVRC media station. We're proud to live here too.